The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him uh, release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the Kid Zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Thanks for reading and good morning. My name is Ben. Um, I'm on staff here at Restoration and we're glad you are here this morning on a uh, very cold day. So um, you did it. Uh, you could be sitting under a blanket watching whatever you want to watch and, uh, and you are here. So we're glad you're here. Uh, we started uh, the series on Mark uh, last August. So it's been many months. And so um, y'all have been patient. We haven't scared you away quite yet. And so uh, as we're finishing Mark, um, we're nearing the end. And and what's just happened, uh, the beginning of last week's passage was that Jesus was captured. They captured Jesus. And what happens at the end of this week's passage is he's going to be crucified, which means there's a lot that happens in a little bit. And that's what Mark does. Mark's a, a gospel writer, one of the four, and he's known for his pace and his speed and how he packs a lot of things in there. And so with certainly with a text that's well-known, maybe by some, it's important for us to slow it down a little bit and see what's really true and prominent in it. But also because it's important to slow down and place ourselves in the story. Because this morning there's there's something that, we all can find ourselves placed right in the middle of this narrative. And so um, with that in mind, we'll look at three things this morning. We'll look at 
uh, his identity. Uh, second, our release. And then third, his coronation. His identity, our release. And then third, his coronation. His coronation. So with that in mind, would you pray with me as we study God's words this morning? Lord, whatever it is this morning, you've uh, gathered us in this room uh, late morning on a Sunday in Chattanooga, Tennessee to talk about ancient truths uh, that uh, know us and that lead us and guide us because they attest to the one who is truth. And so this very day, no matter who we are, would you help us see you more clearly? that we would see you, Jesus, exactly who you are. I pray that uh, for those of us that come out of routine, that you'd surprise us. For those of us that come out of curiosity, Lord, that you would fill us. Lord, for them, some of us that come out of just deep desire and, and yearning and hunger, Lord, would you satisfy? And give us the very thing we each need this morning because of the fact that you know us. Be with us now, Holy Spirit. We pray this. In your name, Jesus, amen. Uh, so first, we'll look at his identity. We see it in his text uh, this morning. And in this scene, Jesus has just finished up with this kind of shoddy kangaroo court. And the Jews have gathered up, and Judas led uh, the, the Jewish leaders to Jesus. They took him and had a quick trial in the middle of the night, which wasn't allowed, and with um, multiple uh, people on the stand that contradicted each other. All the things that didn't fit together, and yet he's condemned. And they're taking him to Pilate, and Pilate is this Roman governor. The Rome was the one that occupied the area. And the Roman governor of the area, and they said, Pilate, we can't kill him. We can't have the blood on, on our hands. And so here's him to you. You kill him. You deal with him. And that's what we see uh, here in verse 1 and on, as you can read with me on the screen. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests had their consult, held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. In these 20 verses this morning, it's all about Jesus. How he's with Pilate, and how they'll, they'll flog him and kill him eventually. And all, it's all about Jesus. He's, he's this, the protagonist and the main actor in this entire passage. And in these 20 verses that we're looking at this morning, in Mark's account, he says one phrase. That's it. He speaks up once. And Mark says how um, Pilate asks him, after all these accusations, he says, are you Jesus? Are you king of the Jews? And, and Jesus replies to him and says, you have said so. You've said so, Pilate. That's it. I am. I'm taking the words out of your mouth and, and affirming them. You have said so. I am king. And the one thing that Mark wants to make very clear in his uh, telling of this account, in this scene, is that Jesus is claiming an identity for himself. I am king. I am king. 
And for the Jewish leaders, they're not trying to kill him because uh, he's done miracles or he's done healings or even for his teaching. They're trying to kill Jesus because he claims authority that dismantles the authority they've given themselves. And they want to kill him because they've lost power to Jesus. And even Pilate notes this. Later on, in, we'll read, in verse 10, it says how Pilate can tell and read the room and say the crowd is just envious. They're filled with envy and they want to kill Jesus. They want to kill Jesus because he's dismantled their power, because he says, I'm king. I'm, I'm claiming power, absolute authority. I'm king. Now, if I were to ask you, who is the greatest basketball player to ever touch the court, you would have an answer. And if you said LeBron, it's the wrong answer. So between LeBron James and Michael Jordan, the discussion is who is the greatest player to ever play the game? And you can say, well, Phil Jackson made Le- uh, Michael Jordan great. And oh, you know, LeBron, so this, or that. we could talk all day. But, but the point is that we have, there is that discussion. With that, there is that uh, feud and there's those really distinct arguments because there is an absolute title that two people cannot share, right? If you say, who is, who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time in, a, in the game of basketball? You can't say uh, Jordan LeBron. You can't have the two people share the same absolute title, absolute authority, and here, the religious people want to kill him because he claims absolute authority. But also, as Jesus claims that absolute authority and says, I'm king, it does something else to Pilate. Pilate is amazed, it says. Pilate is amazed by the resolve that Jesus has, and it captures Pilate. You know, Pilate has all his power. He's a Roman governor. And so he's, he sees people all the time trying to plead for themselves and, and argue and justify and try to get them, themselves out of some kind of predicament they're in. And here he sees someone who's not trying to argue his way out of it at all, but make it clear of who he is. And, and uh, there's other accounts in uh, the scriptures, there's four gospels, that speak to the life of Jesus and certainly the, the Passion Week of Jesus. And so when there's separate accounts and they speak differently and maybe tell a different story or different telling, it's not because they contradict. It's much as the, the, the authors are trying to highlight different points of the real, actual scene that happened. And so uh, John writes in this way, in John 18, he says this, of the same moment we just saw with Jesus and Pilate, Jesus answers Pilate and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would, be fighting, would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus makes it very clear his identity, who he is. To the religious elite, He rips off this veneer to expose their hypocrisy that's uh, glossed in the name of religiosity. And they want to kill him for it. And to Pilate, this powerful political figure, he says, I am king. And it captures and and amazes Pilate. But he's saying, I'm I'm not a domestic threat to you, Rome. I'm here about a cosmic agenda. 
we see two people who land at two different uh, places and, and names and dispositions toward Jesus, all because of his identity. The powerful claim of who he is. And, and to that very point, Alistair Begg points out about this predicament and this place. He says, uh, this is not a trial of Jesus as much as it is a trial of Pilate. Pilate has to make up his mind about who Jesus is. The Jews already have, and they want to kill him. Pilate has to make up his mind about who this king is. He has an inciting identity. That is, because Jesus says he's king, something rises up in us. And so this very day, the fact that he claims to be king, an exclusive title that he cannot have any uh, share of with anyone else, what does that incite in you and rise up in you? And I say that because we have to make up our mind about Jesus. And he asks us that because he says, I'm king. We have to deal with him. It's his identity. Uh, but, but also in this passage, we see a second thought. Uh, we see that that's our release. We're released. Uh, there are 1,268 episodes of Law and Order. There is Law and Order. There's Law and Order uh, Special uh, Victims Unit. There's law and order under the sea. There's law and order up in space, galactic. There is, there's law and order for everything. Um, preschool version, there's, no, I'm just kidding, there's not that. Um, that was a bad joke. Uh, and, and every episode's the same, right? Dick Wolf has mastered the art of an episode. It's someone's walking, these two New Yorkers are walking down the street and with their cup of coffee going to their high rise and they, they go and they see this alley and there's something in the alley that's fishy. The police come and investigate and then the person who is the perpetrator is the person you didn't think it was. I just spoiled every Law & Order episode for you. And the reason, the reason no one starts the 30 minute episode, the first three minutes, and it's like, nah, I'm gonna walk away. Uh, no one does that. Maybe you do, but I don't. And it's because, for two reasons. One, we're story-oriented creatures. When we see a story begin, we have to see resolve. We love resolve. And if we have to write the story, that's fine. We love resolve. But also, we see a story that, that, that begs for justice. Something's wrong. And something has to make it right. That justice needs to be served and settle accounts and when injustice reigns, it doesn't sit well with us. We need justice. We're hooked by justice being served, and we hate injustice reigning. And it's actually, that's the, the part of the image of God in us. But in Mark 15, we see this thing happen, where Jesus is... Um, he comes out and Pilate presents him and says, I don't find anything wrong with this person, but, but hey, there's something that we do where we bring out a prisoner and two prisoners are there and you get to pick one's released and one stays and serves the sentence. And here we see Barabbas pulled out and, and they say in the text that Barabbas is this insur insurrectionist and he's a murderer and they bring him out from jail and they pit Jesus against Barabbas and they give the, they put the ball in the court of the crowd and they beg for Barabbas to be released. They, 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 uh, the chief priest gets the crowd riled up and say, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And then Barabbas is let go and Jesus then takes on the, the, the sentence that he's given. He's crucified. 
and we'll get to that in a second, but when we look at that very moment, we know the story well maybe, but if you were there, something inside of you would, would be stirred up because you'd see someone you know who's guilty. Like you, you would heard in the news around town that there's this Barabbas guy and he's an insurrectionist and he, he, uh, he's a murderer. And you would see that that guy got released. And, and you may not like Jesus or know Jesus, but, but he hasn't done as bad as him, you would think. And yet Barabbas goes free. Something inside of you wouldn't sit well. And in fact, we would probably grow to hate Barabbas and hate the moment. And that's not untrue or bad. It's just noting, noting the reality of the text. But, but here, as we look back in the year 2022, back to here, it's important for us to note that, that Barabbas is our mirror. That Barabbas is us. The guilty, the one who has the verdict in on him, on them is let go because the innocent comes and takes the sentence and the verdict of the guilty. The innocent's taken up, the guilty's let go and free. The truth of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, the scandal of the gospel is that the guilty are let go and the innocent are taken up and given their verdict. That's the beauty of it. And, and yet, for you and for I, it's one of the hardest things to believe. Yes, maybe to understand, but, but to believe. It's the hardest thing to actually accept. It's an easy thing to run from or fight or resist. And, and here's why. Because it's the, one of the greatest truths and dynamics. But, but I don't like being in need. I don't think you do either. That I don't like having to be saved needing someone else to set me free. That doesn't sit well with me. And in fact, I'll fight the reality that I see in the mirror as much as I can, the best I can, because if I can keep from being uh, in need and of being released and saved and set free, I'll be okay. And much of my churning, and I would bet I'm not alone, and you're churning also, and you're spinning, and the extra labor and the extra mind and headspace, I would bet that, that those things attest to the fact that we're trying to avoid needing rescue. It's the heart of the gospel, and yet it's the thing that I so don't want or need. Arthur Miller is a, a 21st century playwright, and in a really pointed time in his life, um, with a lot going on, he's writing a, a, a play and this play is called After the Fall. And he tells a story of uh, this kind of young, um, middle-aged. For those of you who are middle-aged, I just said young and middle-aged in the same word. So you're, if you're middle-aged, you're young. Um, this this middle-aged lawyer, and he's going through a lot in his life. And he's looking back at, back at his fragmented past and hoping for a pros prospectful and hopeful future. And at one point, this lawyer who's gone through so much comes to this realization as he looks at his life and hears that realization. Quentin, this lawyer, says, you know, more and more, I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you, you prove how brave you are or smart. 
Then, what a good lover. Then, a good father. And finally, how wise and powerful. But underlying it all, I see now there's a presupposition that I was moving toward an upward, on an upward path toward some uh, elevation where I would be justified or, or even condemned a verdict anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight, and all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench. What Arthur Miller is getting at is the fact of this. It's almost unavoidable, the fact that we build and construct and live our lives in some way that we're on trial. That we try to find and look at our lives as a series of proofs that that there's some verdict that we have in our head that we don't want to indict us and for us to be guilty of, and therefore we will act in some kind of way to make it untrue. And he says for him and his story, what undoes him is that he's working so hard and he looks up and he's like, he sees that no one is judging him. No one's there to, make, to decide about him. And that undoes him. It's important for us that, that if Arthur Miller's onto something, and I think that he is a part of it, we have to place ourselves in the courtroom and we often plead the argument of what we long to be true in our lives and also what we long to be untrue in our lives. And so if, that, if, that, if there's some truth in that, what, what is the thing that you say about yourself? That if you're pleading for yourself and making an argument about yourself, what do you say to make everything okay, to make it so that you need no rescue, that you need no saving? that this whole sacrificial innocent person come in and take the spot of the guilty doesn't have to be true. So much of our life is the churning and the spinning of needing to avoid being rescued. And yet it's important to read Mark 15 and, and I would invite you to, to put yourself in the place of Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this murderer, and, and he stands in a court and he's not trying to justify himself. He knows he's guilty. And the person of Jesus takes on the verdict that he has. And, and I would be, have the audacity to say and the hope to say that he takes on the verdict that you have too. That you're fighting day in and day out that you long to be true or you long to be untrue. That Jesus is a person that takes on the verdict of other people. It's, it's who he is by nature. It didn't happen just now and when he's kind of at the end of his life in the last hours and days. It's actually the very beginning of his life. He got involved with you and I when he decided to come as a baby. Jesus is a God, he's a son of God who involves himself with you and I to take on the very thing that, that has you and I's number. And what's amazing is that a street level application of that truth is this. The size of your verdict will tell you the size of your Jesus. So if you have kind of that thing that's a liability in your life, you really would love to fix it and change it, but you just kind of can't. And it's just that kind of thing that comes up every once in a while. Uh, your Jesus likely will be the size of that thing. I need someone to, to fit that. And, and, and maybe if uh, you're pretty competent, and actually you get, you get through life pretty well, 
But there's a, you hit a stumbling block at once or twice that, that there's this thing that you can't quite get over and curb and get around. Your Jesus will, will, will be the size of that thing. But when you know that when you look back at your life, like, like Quentin, this young lawyer, look back at his life as a series of proofs, these things, these experiences that he had to make sense of to fight the verdict. When he looked at those things, those, are, those things also fill your life and my life. And it's the things like the hardships and the sufferings and the addictions and the doubts and the wonderings and the shame and the sin. It's those things that Jesus has come to be bigger than because it's those things that have our number that we can't quite get around. So that when your your need and your verdict and your lack is this much, Jesus is this much and all the more. He's a God that come take takes on our verdict, takes on our sentence, and serves it. And the heart of the Christian life is reckoning with that fact over and over and over again because that fact is a hard thing to believe to be true about you and I. And a quick thing that we noted what's in the text and what happens in the scene, but what, let's talk about what doesn't happen in the scene too. Jesus takes on Barabbas' guilt and verdict, and he's killed, and he's going to be crucified. Jesus doesn't stop Barabbas as the chains are coming off of him, and he's um, waking up a guilty man and leaving that day as a free man. He doesn't stop Barabbas and say, hey, Barabbas, just so you know, there's some strings attached. You know, don't forget about this. You owe me one. There's a scene in the office where um, Dwight wants to be owed something. And so he's bringing muffins in in the morning. And he says, when someone says, thanks, Dwight, he says, don't worry, you owe me. He's basically having, just putting, he's baking strings attached into every scenario he can. Just so he's owed something. And so they owe him something. And that's not what happens here. That if we live the Christian life where, okay, yeah, Jesus paid for my sin. He took on my verdict, but, but now it's probably time to pay up. There's some strings attached. You will always run the risk of maddening yourself with your failure or having an improper view of Jesus because he still thinks that you need to pay something because the cross hasn't paid for it all. And friends, the Christian life is the fact that he has come and your verdict is bigger than you even know. And friends, the cross of Christ absolutely satisfies all of it. And that's the scandal of the gospel and it's the hardest thing to believe. And when it does, it frees us from pretense. It frees us from from trying to justify ourselves and it frees us to actually live as free people. And here's why I know that. It's because God said it. Paul writes in Romans 5, the scandalous truths about this verdict and innocent dynamic. And he says, you see, At just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly uh, possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? 
For if, while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? He pays for us with his life, and yet our life now begins because his life is paid for in his death. Barabbas woke up a guilty man and he walks away a freed man. The point of the story is not to be like the insurrectionist, the murderer Barabbas. The point of the story is when you have a deep awareness of your sin, of your shame, of your doubt, of your needing to be saved and released. When that's a large category, it's not too much for Jesus. And in fact, he says, thank you for being so self-aware because you get to know how much And how beautiful grace is for you. What's his identity? His identity is that he's a king. What's this Barabbas thing? It's that we're released. But third, we see his coronation. If you were to walk in our house, you would know who um, has celebrity capital. And and one of uh, probably the top of that list is um, Anna and Elsa from Frozen. If you don't know Frozen, uh, you can walk in that room over there with the little people and ask some some people about it. It's a Disney movie, and it's where these uh, sisters uh, are a part of this uh, royal dynasty in Arendelle. And their parents die traveling, and all of a sudden there are these young girls that are, are the future heads of this kingdom. And there's dark and dreary days as they're dealing with the fact that they've lost their parents And finally, one day comes when the older sister Elsa is going to be queen. That Queen Elsa will come. And the younger sister, Anna, wakes up and she says, it's coronation day. And then she begins to say, "Uh, the window is open, so is that door. I'm not going to sing that song for you. Uh, But she begins to sing this song. And towards towards the middle of the song, she says, uh, for the first time in forever, the title of the song, For the first time in forever, I'll be dancing. Wait, no, that's not how it says. Um, For the first time in forever, there'll be music, there'll be light. For the first time in forever, I'll be dancing through the night. Don't know if I'm elated or gassy, but I'm somewhere in that zone. Because for the first time in forever, I won't be alone. For the first time in forever. She's able to say that because coronation day for her changes everything. The fact that someone's coronated, the fact that someone has a crown placed on their head and is given all authority and is able to rule and reign in that kingdom, the fact that that happens changes everything. And Mark makes a big deal about Jesus being king. We hear it over and over and over again. Uh, Jesus is king. In fact, in Mark 1, verse 15, 15 chapter, verses in to his book, He says, Mark says, that Jesus says, uh, the time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. I'm the king. The kingdom has come. It's here right now. The gospel is here. The gospel is this militaristic word where um, if you would win a battle for your your kingdom and your people and your territory, you would say to a runner, hey, go and tell the people that we won. Tell them the good news of the gospel, of the victory. And Jesus is saying, 
The king is here. The kingdom is here. Here's the gospel. I'm here to win. And I'm here to win by losing. Go tell people that. The kingdom is here. Mark makes a big deal about it. And he's saying that Jesus is the one that's been long promised since long, all really eternity. But we see it in Genesis 3.15. He's the one long promised that will make all the sad things come untrue. And to that person, we see what his coronation is like. Remember, the coronation day changes everything. Because a claim is given and a crown is given. And we see what Jesus' coronation is like. In verse 16, it says, And the soldiers led Jesus, led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down and homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes up put his own clothes on him and they led him out to be crucified. Once he, it's decided he will be crucified. The guards call in the entire battalion and they bring him kind of to the back room into the palace and all of these Roman guards and Roman authorities are pretty much encircling him, robbing him and stripping him naked fixing a crown for him of thorns, pressing it into him, mockingly getting on their knees, bowing before him, saying, hail to this king. And then when they get tired, you know what, they'll get up, strip him naked of this purple cloth, this purple robe, and put his clothes on him and then go kill him. The person that will make all the sad things come untrue is honored and coronated that way. And the only way that, that that mocking and humiliating scenario and scene in reality is okay, doesn't win the day and win the story, is if it, the same thing happens again, and it does. That when Jesus is circled up by people and given a claim and given a crown and given worship, and we see it in Revelation 5, and John is able to see what happens, how the story ends and eternity begins. And, and he sees actually what it's like. And he, said, he notes this. Then I heard, I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. 
when he's coronated as king with a crown of thorns, naked and mocked with a Rome battalion around him, beating him. We see that very scene recapitulated when all things come untrue, all the sad things come untrue and every tear is wiped from every eye. And when King Jesus reigns and he brings all of the goodness of his kingdom to fullness, what happens? He's encircled by people, bowing down as he's on the throne, giving him praise and honor, saying he's not just Jesus, but he's the slain lamb. The only reason the only hope you and I have to have a stake and claim to that moment is if he is the lamb who gets slain and humiliated and mocked and beaten. And the only way that this moment of being mocked and beaten and humiliated, that we can have hope in that for us is if this Revelation 5 thing is true, that he will one day stand and we will stand with him because our verdict has been taken on fully by him. And his record has been fully given to us with no strings attached, but fully able to live and know the fact that that's our king, that we are our beloveds and our beloved is ours. And there's no thing left to be done. Friends, the sin and the shame and the things that riddle your mind and your story, that when you look in the mirror, that you st- when you stand in the court, those things if we were to personify it, were the things that were standing there with Jesus in this coronation, pushing the thorns into his head. Because in their mind, they think that they've won. And resurrection's coming. And death is put to death. And those things that mark and mar you and mark and mar me don't get the final word because the empty tomb is coming. The same, same Jesus that takes on our sin and shame and our verdict is the same Jesus that walks out of the tomb and that will stand one day. And everyone's gonna bow down and say, worthy is that lamb who's slain for you and I. Let's pray. The hardest part of the gospel to believe is the gospel. The fact that the innocent one pays the debt, serves the sentence, and takes on the verdict of the guilty. It's the best news we could ever hear, and Lord, it's the hardest news and reality to believe about ourselves. This day, Holy Spirit, would you mark in our hearts and nail it down, the fact that Jesus came for us. And as we stand in Barabbas' place, he doesn't stop us as we walk away with no chains and shackles to remind us that there are strings attached. But Lord, would we be freed to know that he pays for everything we lack? 
and gives us everything he has. Remind us of that truth this day, Holy Spirit, because that's what you long for us to know, King Jesus, as you stand this very moment encircled with people, bowing before you with a throne and a crown that you've earned. Please, King Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. King Jesus, as you stand this very moment encircled with people, bowing before you with a throne and a crown that you've earned. Please, King Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.